Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a quick question for you. What would you ask Rudy Giuliani if you got a hold of his cell phone number and he actually picked up? Oh my God, we got to talk about this. It's the biggest story in the news, of course. It's my blockbuster one-on-one conversation with Rudy Giuliani. Take a look. So I swung by the Grand Havana room and they mentioned you have some kind of outstanding upholstery cleaning bill. Sounds like you sat on that chair for four minutes and the stain was like nothing they've ever witnessed in this world or any other. I don't remember breaking a chair. Yeah, I don't think it was breaking so much as a stain that they were worried about. A stain? Yeah. Now that brings us to tonight's installment of Stangate. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was my guest today, R.J. Freed, prank-calling Rudy Giuliani as cartoon news anchor James Smartwood on Tuning Out the News. Before RJ created Tuning Out the News, he actually worked behind the scenes at MSNBC on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. From there, he moved on to The Late Show with David Letterman before launching our cartoon president on Showtime, which, like his newest show, is also produced by Stephen Colbert. Of the many political comedy shows on TV right now, Tuning Out the News somehow manages to be the most consistently funny and hard-hitting. So I was just really excited to talk to RJ about how he gets people like Jeffrey Epstein defender Alan Dershowitz and actual members of Congress to sit down and subject themselves to brutal interrogations from the show's cast of cartoon interviewers. If you've never seen Tuning Out the News, you are missing out. But for now, here's me talking with RJ Freed. Well, it's good to see you. I, I was looking back. We talked over a year ago. It was last April, right when Tuning Out the News was premiering, I believe. And you were just sort of trying to figure out how to do it all from home and, and during the pandemic at the beginning. And, and so it was kind of a crazy time for you guys. But yeah, so it's great to talk to you now. But I guess just to start, because we talked a lot about Rudy Giuliani during that interview. That was for a, a piece in the Daily Beast. So I wanted to see, first of all, do you have any updates on Stangate? Anything to report? Anything uh, Anything going on? <laughs> Look, the, the, the research uh, department is on two floors of a tower somewhere in Midtown working on it. But no, no updates on Rudy. Every once in a while, we'll flirt with uh, giving him a, a call back and, and seeing how things are going. So far, he, he hasn't picked up. Something tells me my phone is... Uh, has been i don't know maybe he knows who's calling nowadays but uh yeah he's he's busy and now it's it's on to andrew giuliani now is oh, our, yeah. is our that's main your, focus that's your new yeah. target you got to get his cell phone number that'd be good yeah i'll work on that yeah i'll have to bribe some uh, reporters into giving it to me i think rudy has like six different phones so i don't know which one you got that's that's also key Actually, now he doesn't have any phones, it sounds like. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it sounds like the FBI has all his phones. Oh, but, yeah, that's uh, a good point. Yeah. So maybe the, when you, if you call him now, it'll just go straight to the FBI. Yeah, he's, but he's, been, he's been good at tuning out the news, and we appreciate uh, his support. <laughs> so I, I feel like sort of the big question for you when it comes to this show is, 
how do you get people to appear on this show? Because I have no idea why anyone is deciding to to be a guest on your show. Not to discourage anyone, but it seems like kind of a crazy proposition. So I'm I'm curious, just at a base level, how do you get people to appear on the show? We have an amazing booker named Julie Zan, who's been a talent booker slash producer for many years, and she's got a deep Rolodex. And she pitches it like she would, I think, any other show. Uh, the Colbert Report has really educated the world on how these things go. And so people know you're to be talking to characters, you're the straight person of the scene, you don't have to make jokes. If anything, we just kind of want you to put out good information. So they have that, that that's kind of taught them how to behave in those scenarios. And it's like any other hit. And I have to say, obviously, COVID has been extremely horrible for the entire world. But it has done this thing in cable news world where now you can just flip on your computer and you're appearing on a, on a TV show. And so the entry point is, the, is much easier now to, to get guests. So, no, we're thankful. We've, we've been very fortunate and Julie's been amazing. When looking at all of your guests, I mean, there are a lot of people who are sort of like Democratic congressmen who maybe are a little friendlier. There's a lot of media people, but there are these handful, I think the ones that have been my favorites um, <laughs> for obvious reasons uh, are sort of the the more adversarial ones that you've done. So I'm thinking about Joe Arpaio, Matt Schlapp was a favorite, um, Alan Dershowitz was a, was a weird one. So I'd love for you to kind of take maybe one of those or similar as an example and sort of talk about why you wanted to have them on the show, how you how you convinced them to, to come on, and then how you prepared to interview someone like that who you know is going to be a little bit more uh, uh, controversial. We try to pick our spots with those, certainly, because there's. I think the audience has a certain level of stress they're willing to tolerate. And if every episode was like one of those, it would, it would probably be a little much. Uh, and, and at some point, we would stop getting guests because they'd be scared that we were going to do, do it to all of them. Yeah, you don't you don't really want to be the show that people are are too scared to come on. Although maybe you do a little bit. You, you there's you got it's a it's a hard balance. Yeah, right? we want to be like honest arbiters and have good credibility with our with our audience. But those interviews you spoke of in particular were I would say are particularly aggressive. When it comes to people like well, there is this thing you're probably aware of, which is that uh, people like being on, on television. <laughs> yeah. And so that tends to uh, maybe appeal to their worst uh, instincts. Yeah. Alan Dershowitz fits that bill. I, I mean, all those people I mentioned probably fit that bill. And yeah, Joe Arpaio was uh, was even on uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, show, Unboxing Children's Toys. So he really likes to be on television. He was more than happy to come on <laughs> to the point where it was almost off-putting. And afterwards informed us that he had a great time and would love to come back <laughs> which it makes you want to like but here's the thing it's like you know we can't make the guests say anything all, all we have is our jokes and so you know if you're going to try to like you're not going to talk sheriff joe arpaio into a different point of view all you can really do is use jokes and evidence to show the audience as much as possible what what we're looking at here now, I don't want to seem like a hokey idealist, but could we look forward to a day where people will take the biggest shits imaginable on your grave? Take the what on the grave? J you know, just giant dumps, uh, you know, big poops. I have no idea uh, 
uh, about that, what, what the question is that you have. I'm going to start saving up now for my bouquet of doo-doos. Oop, I just remembered that life is fleeting and it's not worth wasting another second haranguing a monster, no matter how much he deserves to live by himself on salt flats. So let's wrap it there. Thank you to our analysts and guest, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Joe, let me just say, for all the bad you did, at least you got to dress up like a sheriff. Good night, everyone. And also not fall into the trap that we make fun of other media outlets for doing, which is honestly can be pretty lazy about how they approach guests and issues or they treat guests according to, you know, trying to protect their access. We make fun of them for that. So we cannot fall into the same same traps of, of being lazy when we when you approach these things. So we, we take it. We take our journalistic credibility, even though we're not journalists, uh, or I guess our comedic credibility very seriously. Yeah. I mean, can you talk more about that? Because you, you're such a student of media, I feel like, and you worked in it in the past, which I want to get to later. How do you think about that when you watch? Do you spend a lot of time watching cable news and other shows? And what are they doing that you're really trying to avoid? Well, ultimately, tuning out the news is such an exhaustive production process that I have barely time to uh, <laughs> yeah. do anything but stare I'm at I'm impressed uh, you have time to talk to me right now. I'm all here to shift some things around. <laughs> you made it work because we love you, Matt. Look, I, I was in that chair. Before. I was a segment producer for The Last Word, Lawrence O'Donnell. I have one memory of one time I was, it was during the, during the Libya conflict where we were, I forget what it's called, where you, where you shut down any air uh, capabilities or it was basically a no fly, no fly zone, no, no fly zone. And we were in this kind of like war coverage thing. And, you know, you're watching the wire come in and you're getting all this information about deaths here, injuries here, battles here, and it's very incoherent. It's it's truly fog of war situation. And I'm sitting there typing into iNews, which is the, the software those place cable news uses. And I remember just typing something that that as far as I could tell, the best of my ability, what was happening. And then like ten seconds later, seeing Chris Jansing say it. And thinking that's way too much power to put in the hands of me, an idiot, sitting in a chair in you know Rockefeller Center. There is this thing that happens when you see something on TV that you there's just this automatic legitimacy because of the production values and how good it looks, and these are reputable people, and it really most of the time is a is a charade. And part of the inspiration behind big news was just that. There was that one time when Brian Williams, where a guest did the math on how much money Bloomberg had dumped into his campaign and how it could help people if had they just like donated it. And they were off by, she gave the number and they were off by like a million percent. You see it as a possibility if he wants to spend a billion bucks beating this guy, he could do it. Absolutely. Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads. U.S. population, $327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. But the world kept turning and like no one knew. So uh, you watch that and you're like, uh, there's definitely a discrepancy between, there's a gap between what people think of cable news or news in general and what is actually going on. And we're trying to uh, educate them of, of that That's gap. one thing that I yeah. love that you nail so well on tuning out the news, which is if you say anything in a certain news tone of voice, 
people will just take it. And uh, and you see your guests do that over and over again, where they, they barely react to the most outrageous thing being said to them by this cartoon because it's being said in a certain tone. Yeah, I'm surprised sometimes the guests will nod along to an insane point. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, are you sure about that? All right, we'll hear it. But I should also mention, like, in order to know what's wrong with something, you have to know it deeply. And so unless you're, like, I tell people who are coming up, like, you got to read the New York Times and you got to read the full article, Washington Post, you know, all, there's, there's, there's great journalists out there, but if you're just reading the headlines, you're not getting the full shape of the issue and you need to understand the full shape of the issue to be funny about it. Yeah. And if you're just watching cable news, you're also probably not getting the, the full story. No, here's what I compare it. MSNBC, for example, like, I don't think they're lying, but it's like if I were to tell you about a great white shark and I were to describe it as this majestic creature that goes throughout the ocean and left it at that, uh, you would say, wow, great white sharks sound great. If I left out the part about how they whatever eat humans. And so like, I'm not lying to you, but I'm definitely omitting some pretty key information. And that sort of narrative goes MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, whatever it is, that that's going to exist in some form. The other one that I wanted to ask you about, one, because it's the most popular interview clip on YouTube from your show, and also because it's someone who... Uh, who I've worked with before um, is Rick Wilson, who used to host another podcast for the Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. He's now on semi-permanent leave. And that's one that got a ton of attention, I think, because he was seen as someone who might have been friendlier to your show or more politically aligned with the show. But you guys really went at him hard. I'm curious, why did you, why did you want to do that? Um, and what was that experience like? We wanted to do it because the discrepancy between what people thought about the Lincoln Project and what we thought was the truth about the Lincoln Project was so far apart then. This was before this was before all the grifting accusations and obviously the sexual uh, harassment mm. accusations yeah, came that wasn't out even as well. Part of it. No, it was not part yeah, we had no idea. And it was so clear that there was a mass misunderstanding of what this was. And I remember talking to uh, Zach Smilovitz and Mike Leach, who are co-EPs on the series, who are uh, head writers as well, as, as a doing research and just being like, God, screw these guys. Like, this is really messed up what they're doing. And they're, you know, I had learned from my MSNBC days how to go into FEC docs and actually look at the numbers. And I specifically remember doing this for uh, Palin Pack and seeing their overhead was like 95% and thinking that was just ludicrous. And, you know, you looked at Lincoln Project numbers and they were, they were very out of balance with what I think people expect when they donate a dollar, how much was actually going to, to what they thought it was going to. And so I think we caught Rick by surprise in that. <laughs> yeah, and you I can think kind so. of see Yeah, you can kind of see over the course of over the course of the segment he's slowly realizing that uh, we've really done our research and we're not happy with what we saw and uh, by the end he's completely very pissed off. Let's talk about how the Lincoln Project spends all those Maddow viewers' money. Here is how much three other top liberal super PACs spend on operating expenditures compared to total disbursements. In other words, the percentage spent on overhead costs, including salaries over their lifetime. Senate Majority PAC spends 16.8% on overhead. Unite the Country is 14.75%, and American Bridge 21st Century is 46.7%. What do you think the percentage is for the Lincoln Project? Well, you're going to see our new report coming out in July, which represents our, our first uh, the first major uh, uh, period in our campaign that wasn't involved in startup costs and acquisition costs and data and data costs. 
and you're going to see that we are we are putting about 85 cents of every dollar into voter contact. 85 percent with 15 percent going to overhead would be a lot better because right now it's the opposite. 11 percent goes to independent expenditures and 89 percent goes to overhead. 89.3 percent on overhead sounds like a lot, but I can't get into the right headspace to make a 10 second ad without wolfing down endangered mollusks in a titanium catamaran with my Bush administration buddy. Yeah, you can tell he his face really, really drops uh, throughout the interview. And, and by the end, he basically is not even responding to anything. Is he is he the is he the guest who's been the most upset after a taping, would you say? There have maybe been one or two others that I will not say in public, but his he was definitely the most uh, on camera upset. And I think uh, realizes the papers were already signed <laughs> and we had the footage and uh, he was in trouble. I mean, it didn't do. It also that that traveled from left to right, political spectrum wise, like far right to far left, and I'm I'm glad we we were part of the education of what was going on with that um, organization. Then ultimately, all that stuff came out, and then there was all these studies saying like they didn't change any votes, uh, and so. Uh, but yeah, again, you know, you, you you pick your spots when you see such a, you know, there's people who who are out there who are I would say. Like they're already clowns, they're already entertainers, and you're not gonna. And I think people know that, and so you're not really. There's only so much you can really do. But this was one where the perception was so off. It seemed like we mentioned uh, Andrew Giuliani is a potential guest. Are there other are there other big targets that you have been uh, chasing this whole time, or people that you really want to get on the show that you haven't been able to convince yet? Uh, I'd love to get more Republicans. They, they <laughs> don't yeah. seem to want to. Uh, you know, it's, we've, uh, yeah, I, I would love to get more Republicans, but we've had some really great, the really cool thing is getting like, act, you know, we've had some really great CBS news hosts and contributors, you know, we'll get an MSNBC host every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, it's look, it, it will, we'll take who we can, who we can get, but yeah, I mean the, 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 more power, the better, especially politicians who actually are the ones making the votes. Uh, that's that's ultimately, I think, the most interesting. But it's also, honestly, I think the best guests are the ones who are actually doing good work out there because we get to be the idiots and they're actually doing a good thing. And it's it feels right. It, that's where the, the comedy flows the best. And honestly, the shows where you come out feeling the best because it's like, wow, everyone got to do their role. They got to actually do their, their good work. We got to be idiots. Uh, that's that's the best version. Uh, yeah, it's interesting thinking about having more Republicans on. I, I'm reminded of um, there's this sort of this debate about giving people a platform versus you know, grilling them. And I think it came up a lot. I think Jake Tapper recently said that he wouldn't have anyone on his show who supports the big lie, those kinds of things. Where do you fall on that in the, in terms of, is it more important to have the person on and, and expose them? Or is it, are you in danger of giving someone a, a platform? I would, I would say case to case. I mean, there's definitely guests we've turned down because we didn't want to give them a platform. Anyone uh, you can name in that? category there's like the ben shapiro tommy laren who it seems like would might gain more from it than than we would <laughs> yeah. then there's people who you know say like sheriff joe or pie where we felt like well i think we could get our shots in. i don't think we'll have him back but i think we get our shots in but i don't like making hard fast rules on this i do know that it does seem like donald trump's ban from facebook and twitter has done some damage to his ability to reach his audience. Deplatforming him has been effective in that way. 
So for our comedy show, it's it's that's that's the judgment call. Is are, are we doing them a favor? Are we actually uh, we do think about those things? Is do we want this voice out there, or do we think we can put it out there and filter it it with our jokes in a way that is effective? Coming up, RJ reveals how he made the transition from cable news to late night comedy, and tells a truly remarkable story about Triumph the Insult Comic Dog and Chris Christie. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please hit subscribe. Along with RJ Freed, we have had so many great conversations with comedians who excel at confronting real-life figures, from Sasha Baron Cohen to Jordan Klepper. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love this show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to RJ Freed. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about how you how you got to this point um, of making this show. Um, and I guess we can start, as you mentioned, working for Lawrence O'Donnell's show on MSNBC, which is now, I think, more than uh, over 10 years ago you were working there. What was that experience like for you? And was it kind of, I could imagine it being kind of disillusioning in that it led to you doing this show in some way. Um, <laughs> but but was it, uh, how did you feel about it at the time? Let me start by saying Lawrence O'Donnell is, might be the smartest person I've ever worked with. And he's extremely sharp. Uh, I don't know if I've ever worked with someone who's made me feel stupider, uh, more stupid, uh, in in as much as he has in, in the best way possible. So that was always thrilling to be able to be around him. You learn how to write fast, uh, obviously, like there's the, the news is happening at 10 p.m. And so uh, you learn that, you learn the, much more about the shape of issues. I think as a comedy writer, there's always, I think, comedy people can relate to the feeling of not feeling like your square peg round hole thing where it's like i need to be back in comedy world because those people i think think like me and i don't necessarily think like these you know people do so there was there was that awkwardness you were already in comedy when you started there yeah i actually you know i started in los angeles and got hooked up with dave thomas of sctv 
and did a few projects with him, moved to New York, and I actually got the offer to write on 92 Many Stars with, with Robert Smigel. Like the same day I got the offer for the MSNBC um, job and ended up doing, you know, trying to make both work. Uh, so, um, but yeah, then there is the disillusionment of, uh, well, I mean, look, it, it's all, it was all good education because I got to learn about how cable news works and, and those things I was talking about earlier about where it falls short was helpful. And at some point you made the jump to uh, Letterman's show um, a few years after that. How did that happen? And why did you, were you eager to, to go back to a, a full-time comedy gig? Yeah, I mean, I certainly was. There was always that, like I said, that feeling of I'm not sure I belong in this environment. And it was a straight up submission to Late Show with David Letterman back when their pretty open submission policy and let, right, you know, luckily landed in the right hands. It was great. And I really, um, that room is unbelievably sharp or was unbelievably sharp. And so uh, quite a room to walk to walk into. I don't think I had my sea legs or was ready for that level of how quick things were. But uh, yeah, I had to get up to speed real quick. But it was it was amazing. Were you mainly working on uh, monologue jokes or what was sort of your, your main role during your time there? So they had a few monologue writers and then the rest. And I was part of the rest, which is about like eight, eight or nine writers. So showing up pitching bits of what they called extras for the monologue, which is little videotape pieces, um, sketches for, you know, late in the show and such. And obviously top 10 jokes, ton of top 10 jokes. The reputation that I remember hearing sort of in Dave's later years is that the writers had almost no interaction with him. Was that your experience? Did you have a relationship with with David Letterman? I talked to him more on stage playing the character <laughs> of RJ than I did off stage. I respect that it's it's hard to go out on stage, David Letterman, Lawrence O'Donnell, whoever it is, and be that on and expose yourself that much to mm -hmm. an audience every night. And look, these people are wealthy and they're going to be okay. But it, it's a lot emotionally and performing takes a lot out of you. And so I'm a very private, introverted person and I kind of get it. I, I get the wanting of some kind of space and I get how that could be so exhausting to have to come out on stage and do that, especially if you, most comedians are pretty private, introverted people. And so the idea of, I think those people, I mean, like me, if I go to a party within the first five minutes, I'm exhausted. So to have to go on stage and run the party for whatever it is, 60, 90 minutes is, is a lot. And so, yeah, we didn't interact with Dave a lot, but I, I'm not sure I, I get it. He's got to be ready to go out and perform. You mentioned Robert Smigel, who you've worked with a lot over the years. And I'm, I'm really interested in your time spent on his, uh, the Triumph election specials in 2016. So I thought those were, were just, that had so much really funny stuff in them. And um, I got to talk to Robert Smigel on this podcast last year about a lot of this stuff. What was your experience working with him and, and kind of going around, traveling around with Triumph? That was amazing. Career highlight easily. I, I loved every moment of it. Robert is everything that the legends are true. He's so brilliant and so after the best joke possible, relentlessly. It's all true. And so, you know, I grew up, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen, Stephen Colbert, and Triumph, th those were like my idols. And so to get to do that, when the idea of going on the road came up, I, I begged my wife to, to let me, <laughs> let me do it. And luckily she, she relented and yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I just like ducking under tables, 10 feet from Ted Cruz as Robert <laughs> had the puppet, like right in front. I mean, that was just the best. I have actually a lot of the footage in the special 
I recorded on my iPhone right here. And I could, I could show you some raw footage <laughs> right here. I got raw footage of Ted Cruz signing an AR-15 with a, uh, with a silver marker. Yeah, a lot of that footage was just right off of iPhones because you couldn't get cameras into certain places. But oh, it, it was the best. I, I, that stuff I just love. And to be close to Robert, who is... Uh, you can see the genius on, on camera. He's just relentless, uh, making sure he had good jokes. Is there a sort of craziest moment or story from those travels with him that, that sticks out in your memory, whether it's something that made it onto TV or not? I I think, yes, there is. The craziest moment, one of the craziest moments I ever had in my life, and I think Robert has talked about this publicly, so I, I think, because uh, part of me feels like, oh, this isn't my story to tell, but I, I think he has told it publicly, which is we were doing the bit where... Um, we were the advanced team for Chris Christie at the diner. I don't know if you remember that one, but it was it was basically just we were preparing a diner for Chris Christie was coming soon. And this is back when there was a lot of fat jokes going around about Chris <laughs> Christie. Probably would not fly today. So did all these jokes. And then we are in the the kind of back where they, you know, have their birthday parties or whatever, trying to figure out some kind of ending to the bit. Um, so this was up in New Hampshire at a diner that he actually frequented near the Air Manchester airport. And we're sitting there and then the manager comes in and says, Governor Christie is on his way here. And it was like, what? How? What is going on? We're doing a bit about Chris Christie and he's coming here? So you were just and supposed turned, to interview regular people just about diners. Chris Christie? It just pretend like he was coming. We, you know, we knew it was a diner he had been at before, but then coincidentally, he's coming to the diner. What had happened was he was up in New Hampshire campaigning. There was a snowstorm in New Jersey, and so he had to fly down to New Jersey to do his whole photo op thing and, you know, shovel snow like they always do uh, and pretend like they're actually helping. And so he stopped at the diner on the way to the airport. So that bit, if people go watch it, go back and watch that bit. And then, okay, so then we're like, Robert is scrambling yeah, trying what are to think we gonna of bits do, yeah. for, what are we going to do? Christy's on his way here. And so <laughs> then the manager comes back and says, he's here. Said, Where is he? He's in the bathroom. Perfect. <laughs> Amazing. So you watch that bit and Robert can't, comes up with this bit in the moment where Trump starts acting like a war reporter going <laughs> in the bathroom. We're going inside through the bathroom. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, acting like there's bullets flying overhead. And inter inter actually interviews someone who was just in the bathroom with Christy. That was all complete coincidence and real and just mind-blowing. Okay, sir, I'm talking with a man who has just survived being inside the stall that Chris Christie just used. How was it in there? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. You're not right. Do you have anything you want to say to your family? They were very worried. Uh, okay. All right. And do you want to describe any of the horror? Or would you rather not relive it? Uh, I'd rather not relive it. <laughs> so you got to see for yourself. All right. You're very brave. All right. Our prayers are with you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a good one. There goes the real hero. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the thing, though, is like, it's only a late night guest story because you can't, we were acting, the bit was we were acting as if we were the advanced team. And then it actually, had, there's nothing we could, in, we could inject into the bit to convey that to the audience. So the audience had no idea. Yeah, they just figured it was all set up. You knew he was coming there and you did it. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. No, it was complete coincidence. So just funny. a, a strike of comedy lightning. It was unreal. Yeah, I feel like Robert gets lucky with those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you uh, travel relentlessly around, it, yeah, I mean, 
so much of that stuff was brilliant. That Ted Cruz stuff, he's amazing. So a couple of years after that, you launched uh, our cartoon president. And so I'd love to talk about that show a little bit too, which I really, really enjoyed. And did that sort of stem from Stephen Colbert's show in some way? What's the story about how that show came to be? Yeah, so that show started out as Tim Lukey and Matt Lappin. Tim Lukey comes from an animation background. Matt Lappin is a producer on The Late Show. We're working together on these cartoons, you know, Trump appearing as a cartoon on The Late Show. At some point, Chris Licht and Stephen Colbert approached him and said, hey, is this a show? They went, they pitched it to Showtime, they bought it. And then they were searching for a showrunner. And it was actually, they called Robert Smigel, and Robert recommended me, and I, which I deeply thank him for because it's been it's been every source of income ever since (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i went in and pitched you know here's what i would do with this show and luckily they went for it and so we launched the show on on showtime so it was i mean i haven't haven't left their side since i saw i didn't realize until i was doing the research for this that you played steve ducey vladimir putin and chris cuomo on the show yes i did (laughs) i just like that's a it's a great trio there yeah i don't know what they have in common (laughs) I mean, probably was that show because it was topical and it was also a relentless production schedule. It was it was truly insane. It was like, at least to start, it was like two all-nighters a week, three hours of sleep at night, like tops. It was, and I was also, my family was on the West Coast, so I was flying to the East Coast every single week and it was relentless. So a lot of that is like, hey, can someone hop in the booth and pick this up? And so we actually leaned on the writers a lot who were around these late hours um, to provide voices. We couldn't get someone who was so big that they wouldn't be available on pretty short notice. So I don't think I'm good at it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you were just uh, stepping in as needed. Yeah. And also, I just have a certain fondness for, for dumb guys. I don't know <laughs> if it's my, my hockey background, but I've been around a fair amount of them. So uh, yeah, I... I I maybe get them a little more, I guess. Yeah. I mean, what I thought was really smart about that show is that you're sort of doing something different from what a lot of other portrayals of Trump would do. And I'm thinking especially of SNL, where it seemed like what they would do is just recreate something that happened on camera almost exactly as it was. And that was sort of the bit. Whereas what you guys were doing was really imagining this whole other behind the scenes life of what was happening with with Trump and and the people around him, which I think led to a lot more innovation. How did you think about that in terms of how to how to make someone who's already so outrageous funny? Because that, that's sort of the challenge when it comes to Trump. It is absolutely the challenge. And, and a lot of people reacted negatively to that show because of that. And which I get, uh, there was a, Trump was a very, very negative influence on this country and hurt a lot of people. And I could totally understand why some people just aren't ready to laugh at that. Yeah. Or they feel like turning him into a cartoon is somehow trivializing it. Or is that the, the feedback that you got? Yeah. Here's the thing about bad guys is bad guys don't know they're bad and <laughs> they think they're heroes they they always do i'm sure the worst people in the world thought they were like kim jong-un thinks he's doing the right thing right now and donald trump does too he, he thinks he's doing the right thing and so he is in essence a happy warrior and you know that if you're going to also if you're going to have your central character you, you need your central character of your tv show to have to, to be a happy warrior, to have some kind of aspirations, however horrible they may be. Otherwise, it can be pretty exhausting and, and not really make for a good TV show. And so 
yes, that Trump was a happy warrior. We trusted the audience would, you know, listen to the dialogue and understand that, you know, this is, um, we're by no means uh, Trump sympathizers. And ultimately, we're in an animated world. So we get to do all these kind of, you know, fun plot lines and extensions of, of what we felt in, was his personality and what that would mean for a plot line. And the weird part about it was that there was like seven or eight times where we recorded something, sometimes aired something, and then the actual thing happened. And it was this thing where it's like, it's this thing where if you study the incentives of these people, you know certain things are going to happen and, and they would happen. Is there an example of something that that you sort of predicted with the show? There was a ton. I'm trying to think of the most, you know, from the very first episode, Kilmeade speaking out against Trump. And then we had that line in the pilot, which was a large part, like, uh, you know, a large part of me is saying all this stuff, but a very small part of me knows all of this is completely wrong. And like right as it was about to air, Kilmeade actually said something like, I don't know about all this Trump stuff. What happened at the end of today's Fox and Friends? I only caught the first 170 minutes. Uh, Brian Kilmeade said you're fantastic. Kilmeade using a three-syllable word? What are you hiding? I give Trump's presidency a 10. 10 for me? Well, I'm going to go with a 9, because a part of my brain is telling me that all of this is wrong. My God, I've lost Kilmeade. But then there are things like, oh, like AOC and, sorry, who's, I'm forgetting his name, from the Queer Eye series, we had recorded a bit with him, and then he ended up with AOC, and then, like, the next week he was, like, in her office, and it was all these things where, and a lot of times it was, like, we couldn't just, like, scream to press, like, oh, my God, we had already recorded this thing. It was just, like, they would say, oh, they did that thing, and it was, like, no, actually, we were we were ahead of that. It, it, there was, like, seven or eight coincidences. It was, it was very strange. Um, so before we end, I want to do our, our little speed round with you um, called The First Laugh, which is uh, starts with, what's the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard, uh, whether you were a kid or sort of coming up that, that you really um, connected with? I would have to go with The Simpsons. I mean, it was the first time where I felt like, I think as I grew up, I always felt just a little weird. And I was an athlete. And so I was definitely weird for an athlete. Simpsons was speaking my language, though. And there was this sense of community that came along with it. So yeah, I, I would say they were my certainly my, my first exposure to com comedy and laughing really hard. Yeah. Do you remember the, the first laugh that you got performing in some way or, or maybe even uh, writing in a, in a writer's room or, or something that, that you did that made other people laugh that really made you feel like you could keep doing this? I do. This is a credit to Robert Smigel. I remember, so I wrote for the first night to many stars and there was a bit with Triumph where he was saying some of his other organizations that he was going to sponsor. And it was like, and I got to write some some jokes for it. It was like the Larry King smooth testicles uh, for, for Rimply Balls Foundation, whatever it was. And that was the first time I'd actually been in a theater and seen, because I didn't come up through theater world. I came up through animation and another scripted comedy. But that was the first time I was actually in a theater and got to see an audience laugh at something I, I had written. Obviously, <laughs> Robert's a huge part of getting that laugh. It was very formative because Robert is one of these people where if you say something funny, he's going he's gonna to make it. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter who it comes from. If he, if, if, if he thinks it's funny, it's going to happen. And that's not true in, in a lot of productions. Um, whether it's laziness or incompetence or whatever it is, 
Um, sometimes someone will have a really funny joke and it won't make it to air for whatever reason. Robert finds the funny joke and he gets that thing on the air. I tried to take that to other productions and and yeah, like if you hear something funny, like make it happen. Yeah, well, know? that's that thing. I feel like there's a there's the joke that happens in the writer's room that everybody laughs at, but then someone says, well, we can't do that. But then it sounds like he's the, he's the person who says, well, what, what if we did do it? Yeah, yeah. And it drives producers and prop people and all those people crazy. But no, it's like, I mean, so much of it is like, I mean, even that Rudy Giuliani called the first turning out the news. It's like, hey, can we get Rudy Giuliani's phone number? What would that be like? Okay, now we got to call him and we got to record it and we got to do, you know, and like some of it is just like, let's just go for it and, and, see, yeah. and see what and happens. And a lot of people would just say, yeah, never mind. But, but actually following through is the key yeah uh and that's that that's robert's influence for sure uh do you remember the first joke that you got on on tv on letterman that that uh either he said or the first bit that that you you actually got on yeah because i have the cue card still it was not great it was something about some baseball player had been gotten in trouble for some weird infraction and then I had done, and now MLB will also be trying to clean up, and then the series of kind of increasingly insane infractions that were happening. It was okay. It was fine. Looking back at it, I mean, so much of when you're in that environment, you learn a lot about hard jokes uh, very quickly and what makes an audience laugh, which is different from a lot of other scripted environments. You're trying to make that audience laugh the hard joke. So it was okay. But looking back, you know, it's like definitely had to had to work harder and harder to make better jokes than that for sure. What about a, a favorite joke or bit that you got on Letterman? Oh my goodness. Let me think here. The one that hit the hardest, and I don't know why, was during The View, Barbara Walters talked about, she talked about her erotic device, let's say, <laughs> her vibrator. And I had done a bit about that they had started a foundation to uh, try to make sure that human beings didn't have the brain capacity to turn that into an image. For whatever reason, Dave played it in the act two, which was a compliment because that means you're at the desk and it's like there's a lot of pressure built up. It killed and I have no idea why, but uh, I will take it. It always, uh, you know, like in the best of real at the end, it made it and I've, I have no idea why it killed, but it did. <laughs> That's great. And then finally, what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Is there someone or something that you want to shout out that you that you thought was really funny? I think I'm going to have to go with Sasha Baron Cohen's, the stuff he's, he did with Borat. And I got a chance to sit on that room for who is, who is America for the showtime. And it was like, I would have done it for free. I would have paid to be in that room just to be close to him and see his process. But the stuff he's done with Borat still blows my mind it's it's just so courageous it's it's good i mean people like him and obviously stephen colbert what he did with super PACs and what, what robert did with triumph man that is real real good comedy and it's got a lot of courage to it it doesn't pull its punches that's i love that stuff that's that's the best is there something that you learned from from sitting in on that room with sasha baron cohen that you'll that you take with you or apply to what you do now yeah i mean he's one of those guys who does he, he's got robert did this too robert came into every like he he walked into two uh remotes of 40 pages of jokes i mean just so many jokes ready to go so prepared and we're still reading them in the van getting car sick on the way there trying to find the best ones sasha baron cohen is no different and he's got a roadmap okay if this person says this i got this and if they say this i got this and look you know like there's going to be improvisation but like 
you gotta you gotta come in super prepared and scout out who's gonna be there. What do I say to them? They're probably gonna say this. That's definitely happened in tuning where we knew we knew Alan Dershowitz because the previous interviews he's going to say this, and therefore we need to say this. Or uh, Matt Schlapp, we would research what are they gonna say, so we were one step ahead of them. And inevitably they do it. They have their talking points that they they have for each piece of evidence, and it's pretty rare that they surprise you. You know. Yeah. Ultimately, these people are pretty predictable. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I'm uh, I'm such a big fan of, of tuning and, and everything that you've done. So it was really uh, fun talking with you. And, um, and yeah, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much to RJ Freed for taking time out of his overworked schedule to be a guest on today's show. New segments of Tuning Out the News stream daily on Paramount+, Plus, with full episodes available to watch at the end of each week. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.